Getting into the sermon, why certain books of the Bible or portions of the books were written is very important for us to understand. And many scriptures can be lifted out of context to be applied in a number of different ways. And yet it's important that we understand the context and the specific purpose or purposes for which the scriptures have been written. It's crucial for us to have that full understanding. And so to that end, uh, this afternoon, I'd like to rehearse a portion of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Sometimes on occasion people will refer to uh, the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews as somewhat of a many New Testament, that uh, small version of it, because if one understands Romans and Hebrews, they have a pretty good chance of understanding the New Covenant and what God's purpose is for having the New Testament. Now, and that has merit, but obviously there are a number of other books from the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the other epistles that Paul wrote, and John, James, etc., that uh, add a lot more detail and information that all of us need. But within the book of Hebrews, there is a section that summarizes the entire book to a degree. It helps us understand why it was written and what we are to learn from it. So the, this afternoon, I'd like to discuss part of Hebrews 9. Now, I'll refer to other scriptures in Hebrews as well, but Hebrews chapter 9, but then all of chapter 10. And so for a title to the sermon, you could put understanding the greatness of Christ's sacrifice and how that should motivate us. Understanding the greatness of Christ's sacrifice and how that should motivate us. Now, why might that be important to those of us sitting here this afternoon? Now, the book of Hebrews was written, uh, depending on which commentary uh, one of us may consult, either in the early to mid-60s A.D. That was prior to the destruction of the temple and the uh, routing of, of Jerusalem in particular that happened in 70 A.D. And many of the members of the headquarters church, if you will, the Hebrews, they're there in Jerusalem, many of them had been in the church, I'm sure, for quite a while. Well, now, if it's, let's say, mid-60s, uh, when this was written, then we would, you know, the church started in 31 A.D., so there could be members of the church there for upwards of 34, 35 years that uh, had been a part of God's work, God's family. And I dare to say there were a number of newer converts as well. But I think it's fair to say that it was a seasoned church, a seasoned congregation. In fact, if it, it, in, I think it's quite possible that some of them may have actually seen and heard Jesus Christ. doesn't say that. We don't know that specifically, but it's certainly possible that there were individuals who had been called and converted and baptized on, on the day of Pentecost. And so Paul is writing to those, those individuals as well. So regardless of how long they'd been in the church, many of them certainly were 
familiar with the church, and we, as I said, we could, I think, refer to them as a seasoned church. And in that sense, then I think it's fair to say that that particular congregation probably is very much like the church in Charlotte. We've been around a while, are part of the church, and some of us are very long-time Christians, maybe some, as we saw, not so long, a number of years. Now, Paul gave an extensive explanation about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere. And his reason for doing so was based, I think, here on his awareness of his audience to whom he was writing. They were primarily Jewish Christians. They were some proselytes that had been converted to Judaism and then to Christianity, but most of them were Jewish Christians. And aware of, awareness of his audience was gives context to why he wrote the things that he recorded in this particular book. Just as we can look at the book of Corinthians, and if you outline that book, it's pretty easy to figure out that there were about 12 or 13 very specific reasons Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And here, if you look at the book of Hebrews as well, we can find the reasons for Paul writing to, d- to discuss various matters. He's going to talking about matters, combating matters that certainly related directly to the Jewish Christians that were part of that congregation. The Jews, by tradition, were very much connected or deeply involved by the tradition with Moses, the prophets, Abraham, and even elsewhere you can find, according to that, a special uh, awareness of angels. And these were concepts or traditions or thoughts, understanding that didn't necessarily fade quickly. Uh, for those of us that may have been a part of another church, uh, were devout, quote-unquote, Christians in another, uh, another organization, uh, getting rid of the old ideas, sometimes very difficult. Mr. Armstrong always said it's, it's easier to teach someone who's never been religious, give them the truth, than it is to unlearn wrong doctrines and be converted and fully understand the truth. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. And in these particular verses, Paul is giving uh, the Hebrews a rather stern admonition. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And we're breaking into the middle of a thought as is pretty easily done in Paul's writings because he has some long sentences. But we break into the middle of a thought here in verse 9. It says, And having been perfected, he, referring to Christ, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. There was a lot of things I could explain and talk to about, talk to you about, about this, and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. A congregation, many of which had been around for in two or three decades, had become dull of hearing. And though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. 
and you have some to need have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Those are some pretty uh, strong words to someone that maybe had heard and seen Jesus Christ, had spent upwards of three decades in the church, and to be told, well, that uh, if you become dull of hearing. So I need to explain some very basic fundamentals to you, and that's going to be hard because of your your lack of understanding and become dull of hearing. So Paul, very in, in Hebrews, he very specifically and carefully is about to explain the supremacy, the great supremacy of Christ over all of these other uh, people or, or beings, and mention angels. Uh, and uh, Abraham, Moses, as to what uh, they claim for uh, their heritage. Remember back in, I think it's John chapter, I think it's John chapter 8, where Christ is talking to, uh, to, to the, the Pharisees and talks to them about being free, and they said, well, we, what do you mean free? You know, we, we are descendants of Abraham. You know, we're, we're special people. And so they very much claimed their heritage, thought that made them special, and obviously to a degree it certainly didn't make them special in God's eyes, but they had lost some of that understanding and picked up their own traditions. So Paul goes about explaining just how great Christ is and how much greater he is than whatever traditions or attitudes that may remain with the uh, with those in the church. So let's, uh, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll, I'll refer to this here, although it is very timely for after he has completed the discussion in uh, Hebrews 10. Because along with this uh, attachment to traditions that many of the Jews had, they also had, a, and for right, and good reason, they had great attachment to Jerusalem and to the temple. That, again, was... the what identified or helped them be uh, identify themselves as to who, who they were. But he says here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, and I'm taking this out of context to a degree, but the point is still, it's still important. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one, the one to come. And so he's telling them that this city of Jerusalem, this temple that we have is not is not really all that important. It will not continue, and we know from history and certain that uh, it was only a matter of a few years before the city was routed, and of course the temple then was no more as Christ had prophesied it would be torn down. So the Hebrews were living in a doomed nation. It was just a matter of time. Jerusalem, a doomed city, if it was just a matter of time. And yet without that understanding and then devoting themselves to who they were, being tied to that city and to the temple, it could have confused or minimized some of their understanding about who they were. So Paul is warning them that we don't, 
we can't tie ourselves to a city. They're living in a doomed nation, much as we are today. How much of that reality soaks into our minds? How many of us work as we may to continue to have things as they were? We're living in abnormal times, certainly different from what any of us have ever experienced. This is a different time in 2020, and we like to think about going back to normal. What if normal never comes back? What if this is the new normal? No way of knowing for sure. We think about that. We would like things to be, and yet eventually we realize this is just a taste of what God has prophesied is going to happen to the sage. A number of years ago, you go back a few decades, we had Ambassador College. And at that time, back in the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s, Ambassador College was considered sort of the heartbeat of God's work. That was where headquarters resided. That's where the college was the vehicle by which the work was being done. It was the source of trained individuals, not only for the ministry, but many, many of the employees that were at headquarters had gotten there as a result of being students in Ambassador College. It was sort of the heartbeat of the work. It wasn't the church, and the Ambassador College is no more. But the work goes on. And we're living in a time right now where we're going, we, we can't be too sure of what the future holds. And we have to recognize that our work is before us, regardless of the physical circumstances in which we're living. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll just have a couple of scriptures here to begin this discussion about Jesus Christ and how great was his sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. And this particular verse is the one that piqued my interest, if you will, in this particular sermon and the way it's worded. Because Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So there's been seven chapters he's been discussing, but he wants to come around and say, now, Here's the core of what I'm trying to get across. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord has erected, and not man. Then in verse 6, again referring to Christ, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than that of the Levitical system, the priesthood of of ancient Israel in the Old Testament. He's obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. This is a covenant that he's saying is superior to anything that former Israel or the Jews had ever had prior to this in the first covenant. This is a much better covenant established on better promises. It's not just physical blessings. 
It's not just physical protection, but it's a chance for eternal blessings. In verse 10, verse 10, all he points out here's why this is a better covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not just on a physical basis, but because God will put his spirit and his law in their minds, in their hearts, in their being, and they can begin to think as he thinks and use that thought process to change their lives. They'll begin to not only think as God thinks, they'll begin to do as God does. So he points out here that this is a better covenant with better promises. And it's all because of this mediator that Christ has become. That his his sacrifice and his resurrection has made it possible for us to have a representative at literally the throne of God. Then in chapter 9. Chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 11. And again, these are verses that in particular talk about Christ's great sacrifice. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he points out again, this high priest as opposed to those in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. They were physical. They were human. They made mistakes. But he comes as a high priest, and he has a greater and more perfect tabernacle. It's a spiritual tabernacle. It's not made with hands. It's not of the earth. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So it wasn't just an annual event. He has given himself as a sacrifice one time for all eternity, for for all, for all people, for all time. And having obtained eternal redemption, possible to be truly forgiven of our sins. It says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the physical blood of the physical animal sacrifices could offer some sort of cleansing of the flesh, at least make us presentable to God in the flesh, how much more can this blood of our Savior Enable us literally to have our minds, have our consciences cleared of all the dead works and then to serve God who is a living God. Spiritual cleansing. And this, for this reason, in verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he is promised here, he's enabled the chance, uh, rather, we can be forgiven of our sins 
and have redemption from all those things and receive not only the physical representation through sacrifices to have their the physical sins at least removed uh, through, the, through the physical sacrifices, but actually have this promise of eternal inheritance because we are being given spiritual redemption. Then he goes on in verse 18. He says here, therefore, not even the first covenant was, uh, would not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Some sort of blood sacrifice is required in order to be forgiven of the sins. Therefore it was necessary, in verse 23, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Their spiritual antitypes are part of the purification. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we have this chance to have spiritual forgiveness because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. So he says here in uh, verse 11, points out, he goes, Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle. We have a chance to have a, to be a part of a spiritual body, not just a physical temple. It is a, we're a spiritual temple of God. So here we find these physical sacrifices are simply copies of the heavenly things. It points out that Christ came to make a wholly different offering to us, through to, to God for us, so that we could in fact become part of the body of Jesus Christ and part of the family of God. So Christ pointing out here is Christ is greater than all the burnt sacrifices, greater than the Because of those things, he offers us a chance for a better and a new covenant for our sanctification. And so great, it's done only once, done forever. He talks about here is not with, in verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This sacrifice gives us a chance to be forgiven forever not just annually. So then he tells us what we should do with that understanding. As we go on to chapter 10, which we'll spend our time here in this particular chapter, understanding what uh, what we need to understand about this new covenant and about the blood of Jesus Christ and about the, the very special part we have in God's family. So in chapter 10, we'll begin uh, reading here. Oops, back. 
In chapter 10, you can read it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer annually year by year make those who approach perfect. So the physical things could not change human nature, physical sacrifices. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The physical sacrifices couldn't do that. We were spiritually liable and condemned for our, our sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So we have that Christ is greater than burnt sacrifices. What he's doing and what he's giving himself totally overrides all of the physical sacrifices that Israel had been commanded to, to observe. In verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, the first covenant, the first testament, that he may establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we have this understanding that the physical sacrifices didn't really accomplish a great deal of spiritual change in the Israelites. We needed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and, of course, the gift of God's Holy Spirit. He tells us what we have to do with that understanding. And he says in verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily. And offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those physical sacrifices didn't purify the individuals. Simply made them aware of their humanity, of their sins. But then referring to Jesus Christ, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified, those who are in the process of being purified, who are being set apart. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Eternal, or says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins, their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So he points out that we have a chance to have spiritual forgiveness, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to have those sins removed, or the penalty of those sins removed, be forgiven in God's eyes. So he points out that this sacrifice is greater than anything the ancient Israelites had had. Any, any, 
any special nature that the Jews claimed that made them special in terms of on a physical basis. God says what's more important is obedience to his law and being forgiven of our sins. And we're being sanctified through that blood. So we come to an explanation here as we go through the remaining part of this chapter of what matters. God expects us to do direct contact with him. And so he points out here the greatness of Christ's sacrifice so that we understand the the boldness with which we have, have the opportunity to come before our God. So we begin reading then in verse 19. The first of seven points that I've drawn out of the remaining part of this chapter. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, and by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. So we have this opportunity to boldly enter into the Holy of Holies, to literally go before the presence of God the Father and of Jesus Christ on his throne. We can come, Let's look back to chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews. Similar reference. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold on to what we have. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he tells us here in Romans, Romans uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and also chapter 4, he's pointing out that we have, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access literally to the throne of heaven. As he mentions in verse 19, to the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, and a new and living way that Christ prepared for us, we have direct access to God the Father. And so it's important that we not forget what a great privilege that is. You and I do not have to go through any human mediator. We can go directly to the throne of heaven, to God the Father, We don't need a human mediator, and we don't have to have an appointment. We don't have to get on anybody's schedule. At our will and at our opportunity, we can go straight to the throne of the universe. Again, you don't have to make an appointment. And when we pray, we literally are coming into the presence of the Father and of Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You and I have that opportunity to literally claim the privilege of coming before God the Father and Jesus Christ because he has made us a part of his family. He's given us understanding of his way of life. 
And we have committed ourselves to that way of life. That for, from the point we're baptized, we have said for the rest of our lives, we will continue to follow to the best of our ability God's way of life. To serve, to serve Him, to serve His people, to serve His work. We have that privilege of being part of that work and that family. So we are very, very special in that sense that we can literally come boldly before the throne of grace. Then in verse 21, we'll pick up a big part of 20 again. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. We have someone who is there representing us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. This is point number two. It's connected to point number one, obviously, where we have direct access to the Father. We have faith in that sacrifice. He says here that let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith that you and I have the distinct privilege of coming before God and knowing that we have the right to enter into the presence of God. Full assurance of faith. And having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That we can then be bold about it. We can be confident that we have God's attention. We don't have to go and interrupt God's train of thought. Now, if you want to talk to somebody and you need to make eye contact, uh, you ever felt uncomfortable when they start looking sideways? You know, you're trying to, you're trying to communicate, and yet you know their mind is wandering and it's it's somewhere else besides whatever you have to say. We can know that it's because God is God. We, in the sense, if I put it this way, could, we have His undivided attention. Because he can give that kind of attention to each and every one of us. We come boldly before that throne. It's obviously connected to the first point where he says we, we know that it's, we have his, his attention. But we can see our minds have been changed and we continue to change that we've been washed with pure spiritual water. You and I have the privilege of directly communicating with our Father. Let's look back at the book of Romans for a couple of scriptures. In Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus, or just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We are buried with him at baptism, and we are told we should be walking in a new way of life. We should be living a different life once we have been baptized and received God's Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, chapter 8, 
chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Romans. It says, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned if we've been, if we've repented and been baptized and given God's Holy Spirit. We are not living under condemnation. We've been justified and have a chance to have access to the Father directly. It says, and for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no condemnation. You and I do not live under this cloud of judgment. We're being evaluated, but we're not being condemned as long as we continue in this way of life. We have this privilege of becoming, we've been buried with him, and we can be bold in how we come before God. And he points out here in this, as we go through this, third point I'd want to draw our attention to is holding fast. In verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we need to be confident that you and I can make it into God's kingdom. We've been called into the family of God with the intention of actually succeeding in qualifying for that kingdom. He who is promised is faithful. So God says, I'm faithful. I will always be with you. And what he wants is us to do our part, to continue to cling to him. We should not waver in our hope for eternal life. Because God is faithful. He says he was promised is faithful. We can trust God to do what he says he will do. And our obligation is to ask for his help so that we do what we've promised to do. Let's go back in First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he finish the job of setting us apart and following through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul points out that God is wanting us to be sanctified and actually qualify for his kingdom, blameless until Jesus Christ comes back. And then in verse 24, he says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He tells us that God the Father can be trusted to take care of us. If we hold fast, if we are confident, we should be confident that you and I can actually make it into God's kingdom because Christ And the Father will help us with our challenges. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, says, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Has any one of us ever 
experienced failure when someone that we trust, we have faith in, does not hold up their their bargain. They prove to be unworthy of that faith. I think most of us have experienced that on a human basis. We put our faith in someone and find out some, um, somehow that faith is betrayed. But it says here, the, the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and me and guard us from Satan himself. Then in Philippians chapter 1, We want to hold fast. We can be confident that you and I can make it into God's kingdom, that you and I have been called to be successful. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a very well-known and used scripture, we need to think about what it promises here. Breaking into the middle of a thought, he says, but being confident of this very thing, peace of mind, that comes with this confidence, with this awareness, deep awareness on our part, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God does not give up on us. As people, human beings, sometimes we give up on God. But we're told, again in verse 23, Of the back in Hebrews chapter 10, but let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The guarantee that the Father, Jesus Christ, they will do their part in seeing us into his kingdom, to their kingdom, to their family for eternity. Then back in Hebrews chapter 10 again, one of the things that we are told we have to do, this is a fourth point. This should be part of what we have to do. It says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. They simply stated here, point number four, is that, God tells us we should encourage one another. We should be a source of strength for one another. And all of us should have, and hopefully do have. There are those of our our fellow brethren that happen to be very close friends. The ones that lift us up when we're a bit down. The ones who help us through the difficult times. And while each one of us must give account individually for what we do and how we live, we can certainly assist each other through prayer and kind words. And we pray for the work. We ask God to take care of his work. But hopefully we also are praying for one another. We're asking God to help our friends, help our brethren. There are those of, of us in this congregation, we know some better than others. And some we may know private matters, personal matters, for which we can pray and assist one another. 
The Bible elsewhere says we should provoke one another unto love and good works. Now, that doesn't mean literally a provocation, but that we should, by our example, by our words, that we should encourage one another to be obedient. We can ask ourselves as we deal with one another, are our words to one another, are they inviting? Are they encouraging? Are they positive? Or might they on occasion be a bit abrasive? Do we ever lose patience with one another? Need to be an example for each one, each other. We need to be inclusive, a good example. And as we all know that our actions, how we treat one another, our actions speak louder than words. But words are also important, aren't they? Sometimes we get our feelings hurt because of what someone says to us, not just what they do to us, but what they may say to us. So we have to ask ourselves that we should be here encouraging one another. It says here, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That our motivation in our interactions, in our fellowship with one another, should be sources of encouragement to continue steadfast in this way of life. We want to help each other into God's kingdom. Even a little, every little bit of encouragement is to share our lives with each other and help each other literally into God's kingdom. All right, point number five in this these things that we can be doing. Point number five is in verses 25, or in verse 25. It says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And as we are living, what we certainly believe is the end time. And we see the day approaching. We see our nation crumbling in so many ways opposed to God's way of life. We see the things that they do, the things they represent, the things they propose in our governments. We see these things coming. We realize that this is a very difficult time. And we have to encourage one another, exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. We can see, it appears sometimes, we can, we can see the end of the age simply falling upon us. And the world sometimes seems immune to that. They're, they're aware of dangers and concerns about various problems. But many of those are personal. They're not national necessarily. They're not international. They're only concerned about their welfare. But we can see the end of the age approaching. He says here, as we see that day approaching, we should be exhorting one another, helping one another, encouraging one another being good examples to each other. So he says here then, we see the exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now there was a period of time this year when we were not able to assemble like this. Do you, do you remember that? I'm sure you do. What was it like to not be able to fellowship person to person as we are able to do right now? We see the day approaching that we need to be aware that we can help one another. 
We should be encouraging one another and being a part of the church. Pick it up in verse 32. It says, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, after you were called, after you were given understanding of God's truth, you endured a great struggle with suffering, sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and by tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven, which is not in some of the other other items here, other context, should be omitted in some places. But knowing you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves, it won't be just in heaven. Our reward also for a time will be right here on this earth. So he says here that we need to rehearse and remember the early sacrifices you and I have had to make in order to be a part of God's work, in order to obey God. And he says here to remember your early zeal. Remember, recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. So for some of us, when God first called us, we had heavy trials that we had to overcome, we had to endure in order to obey God. Some of us lost jobs. Some of us lost family, people who didn't want to be around us. Some of us lost friends. So we had to make sacrifices. And he said we should remember these things. We we endured a great struggle with sufferings. And in some cases we we lost family, we lost friends because of what we believed. He made these early sacrifices because of our love for God's way of life. Some of you, some of us, may have been rejected by family members because of what we believe. What God gave us to understand, we lost on those things. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We'll read a couple of verses here about the Ephesian church, church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, talks about to, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And read verses 4 and 5, something we do need to remember. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, for where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Some of us were persecuted. In some cases, our energy, our spiritual energy, our dedication waned, and we were warned that we don't want to lose that first love. We have to realize that God has called us to salvation and hold on to that with all of our being, with all of our power, realizing what we have been given. There were examples that we need to hold on to. Peter and John 
were imprisoned. Remember these things, the sacrifices we made, Peter and John, back in early part of the book of Acts? They were arrested, they're put in prison, and then they're freed because God intervened. We've seen, we've seen examples in the Bible. We found in chapter 5 of the book of Acts that Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied about the changes they had made, the things they had done, implied one thing and did, had done something else. We also find the kinds of dedication that we need to have. In Acts chapter 7, we find the example of Stephen, where he was willing to die in order to say the things that needed to be said. He would, was stoned and died. And he tells us that we need to rehearse these, these sacrifices that we've made. What kind of sacrifices did you make? I can think of some of the things I've had to to make, frankly, they're not that big compared to all the rewards <laughs> that have come my way. But what about the things you have given up? What about friends you may have lost? What about family you may have lost? Remember those sacrifices and the willingness that we had to give up those things, whatever they were. Was it a job? Was it a good job? Was it a lot of money? Was it a mate that went, uh, decided to go elsewhere? What kinds of things did we lose in order to obey God? We can rehearse those things, the sacrifices we may have made, and remember the blessings that God has given us in order to serve him and obey him. He tells us here, again, what we Going back to verse 34, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves. So that's an awareness that there are, we're going to be paid and repaid many times over with the blessings that God will give to us for what we've done. And point number seven out of these items here in remembering the great blessings we've been given and this great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. Go up to verse 35. He says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He's telling us here in verses 35 and 36 along with these other points that we've given, been, been discussing, Paul simply reminds the Hebrews, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let all of the sacrifices that you have made in the previous years. And for many of us, he's talking about the Hebrews here, to those who have been around, been part of the church for upwards of 35 years, if you go back to the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D., don't lose out on these things that you have sacrificed. The reward that God has in store for you. Don't cast away your confidence, your boldness, which has great reward. God is holding out enormous reward, not only eternal life, but all of the joys and all of the opportunities that come 
with eternal life in his kingdom. He says in 36 again, for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, when you have obeyed, you've sacrificed, you have stayed loyal and faithful to this way of life and you've served God, you may receive the promise, the promise of eternal life. Not just eternal life. It's not just life that you and I want, but we want eternal life being miserable. But no, we're giving the promise of eternal life and eternal joy, great privileges, experiences of accomplishment, sharing life with God the Father, with Jesus Christ, and with the other billions of people that God will save before this is all over. Has great reward, and you have need of endurance, so we have to endure what we're going through in order to serve and obey God. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. The point here is to simply not quit. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet or resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I dare say that's Probably true for everyone in here. We've not resisted to, sin, to, to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges, corrects every son whom he receives. And if you endure in cha- if you endure in chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? A good father does correct, does deal with his son, his children responsibly. Then in verse ten, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but God does it; He does it for our profit, for our benefit that we may be partakers of the whole holiness, that we can share in his eternal life, in his eternal existence, doing things that are absolutely wonderful. In Matthew chapter 24, this point here of don't quit. Point number seven of don't quit, don't give up. In Matthew 24, Begin reading in verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. What happened to many of them, because he was talking directly to, to the disciples, In verse 10, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. We're given a lot of warning about what this way of life can can lead to. We're being warned. And he says in verse 25, he says, See, I have told you beforehand. We're told that the difficult times are coming. But he says, don't quit. And sometimes life can seem never-ending, especially if you and I are in the midst of a trial. And I know many of us have our trials. Many of us go through those things quietly, privately. But God says all of us are going to have our challenges, and we're warned. So we're told, don't quit. Don't give up. Those points where God is dealing with us, he says here through Hebrews chapter 10, he tells us to keep trying, keep working, keep overcoming, keep serving him, knowing that there is a good ending to those who are faithful. So then in verse 37, as we come down to the close, he says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. So sometimes the physical life, the things that you and I experience, sometimes maybe more appropriately stated, the things that you and I endure can seem never-ending. But he says what's coming, he says he who is coming will come and won't tarry. There is an end point at which time God will intervene and Jesus Christ will return. And the just, as now the just, shall live by faith. We know there is a time of redemption. There is a time when Jesus Christ is going to return. And whether we be deceased and in a grave, or we're alive and literally living when Jesus Christ returns, he goes, the just shall live by faith. One way or the other, we're going to be counted worthy. And he says, if anyone draws back... My soul has no pleasure in him. You and I are challenged by these items that we just went through here in Hebrews chapter 10. That we have to remain faithful. And if we draw back, that God will have no pleasure in us. But he says in verse 39, And that we pray and we study, we serve, we do pray about God's work, we serve and pray for each other. So that, he says in verse 39, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We don't give up this way of life. We don't forsake what God has called us to do. We don't stop believing that there is an end reward of eternity waiting for us. If we remain faithful, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe, believe in all the promises that God has extended to you and me through his word, that there is a time when this physical life and whatever difficulties it presents, this physical life will be over. And God holds out eternity to us. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he encourages them. He goes through some very poignant scriptures here. In Hebrews chapter 10, in talking about the sacrifice of Christ and what he, what he is offering to us, and then tells us to remain faithful. Those who believe to the saving of the soul. If you and I believe 
all of God's word, if we trust in his promise to deliver us, if we actually believe and fully understand the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you and I will have the privilege of being those who believe to the saving of our very being and share in that eternity in God's kingdom.